0: Hey, folks, it's funny how things work out. Last time I was up here, I was singing like, who are you? Who, who? All right, you don't remember. I don't blame you. Uh, it, it was one of those big kind of overarching questions we were talking about, this idea of, you know, it was, it was Peter's confession remember? And, and then Peter's renaming by Jesus. That, that was kind of the idea here. And this big question of, you know, who are we really? And we remembered and we re- recalled that, um, uh, that, you know, Peter is now named Rocky. And Jesus wants to sort of reclaim him and sort of give him this vision that he is more than what he thought he was. That the great I am not has been replaced by the great I am. And upon this rock, we will build the church. So, that was way back when in March. (laughs) Funny how things work out. Today, I'm speaking about who is God? Now, I suppose that's fairly typical to talk about here, but um, it's actually a pretty significant question, and one that uh, has really marked much of faith for all these centuries, right? I mean, that's really the bottom line question. And, and it's, a, and it's a, 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 an important question. It's, it's this question of theology because what we believe about God has an impact on what we think about ourselves, how we view our neighbors, how we treat our enemies, how we treat our environment. I mean, all these, how, how, we, how we engage in relationship with others, all these stem from our view of God, right? If you have a view of God this way, and this is how God thinks about you, you will go this way. If you have, right, it can shape us. So theology really matters. That's the reason I'm really pleased that over this last five weeks, this is now the fifth week, we've been thinking about this really big question about um, God of war, Prince of Peace. We've been struggling with the notion of violence in the Bible. Right? And what does that do to our image of God? How do we reconcile that sort of stuff? Um, At its core, it's this question, what is God really like? How should we be thinking about God? And, you know, maybe even more basic, how are we to read the Bible in light of this big question? Well, as I say, over the past four weeks, Cyril, who decided not to show up today. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? But when the cat's away... (laughs) over these past four weeks has kind of, has, has led us into this, this notion, and, and he's left us with three big ideas. Because, let's face it, the Old Testament presents a God who does some things that are abhorrent. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. Killing everyone. Just go and slaughter everyone. Slaughter the The women, the children, the cattle annihilate the whole bit. Uh, It's disturbing. And so he says, how do we read that text in light of other texts where we see God as compassionate and gracious and loving and merciful? So uh, that's a tough challenge to take, and uh, Cyril has kind of gone with three main points, and it's always dangerous to summarize when someone is here, but he's not here, so (laughs) I'm good. The first thing he said, and and, and correct me if you don't think this is an accurate summary, but it's kind of like, God is a reluctant warrior. If you come down to this dichotomy of God of War or Prince of Peace, he's going to say, He's a prince of peace, but he reluctantly has to play the war game because of the time that we're in. Uh, He calls him a tearful, crying war god. It was a kill or or be killed time of history. And so if he wanted to preserve this people of Israel that he was going to use to bring salvation to the whole earth, you have to play by the rules of the game. So that's his first point. Yes, but he does it reluctantly. Kind of like if you were on a street and saw someone beating up your friend, remember he told this story, you'd wrestle him off, even though you didn't really want to engage in violence. Second, he notes that even though God says these things, he sets up rules of engagement that are kind of subversive. They work below the surface. They nudge Israel towards nonviolence. So, for example, there were no weapons of mass destruction. They weren't allowed to acquire these weapons of mass destruction. And in those days, the weapons of mass destruction were? Chariots. Chariots and horses, right? You're not supposed to have them. Okay, that's pretty subversive. And... Instead of using those things, we're going to equip you with ox goads, like cattle prods, those sort of things, right? Woo-hoo, here we go. I think he called them pea shooters, right? It's kind of like you get pea shooters, ox goads, these sort of things. Um, and, or, or, or an ox or a jawbone of a donkey. That's going to be your, your weapons, And if you think that mass millions of soldiers is how you're going to win, uh-uh, I'm going to keep on bringing it down, 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 down until you know that the person who brought you victory is me, God, the Lord of hosts. That's point two. And then the third point is, bottom line, Sir wants to affirm that God's heart is one of love for all of humanity, and God yearns for peace. So God, at his heart, is a Prince of Peace, according to Cyril, and a reluctant war god. Uh, does that sound familiar? Those of you who are here and all right, got a couple of nods. The rest of you saying, "Oh, that was it, eh?" <laughs> um, that's good. Um, well, when when Cyril asked me to speak. <laughs> uh, I, I, I told them that I was still kind of struggling with all of this, and that if I'm honest, I might take a little different approach to how I read stri- scripture. I said, I, I've been reading a couple books, but this one kind of struck me. It was, it's called Disarming Scripture by Derek Flood, and it's, it's subtitled, Why We All Need to Learn to Read the Bible Like Jesus Did. And I said, so I'm not sure I would land in the same place that you would land. And she said, well, let me read the book. And he said, oh, that's, that's interesting. In fact, he mentioned it. I think he referenced it last week a little bit, too. And, and he said, go ahead. So, reluctantly, <laughs> here I am. Giving you maybe an alternative approach to how we might think about these these texts, these texts of violence. So if you will, let's go on a little bit of a journey. Um, I am not offended at all when people agree, or I guess I'm never offended when they agree. I'm surprised, (laughs) (laughs) but rarely offended. (laughs) But I'm also not offended when you disagree. All right? So uh, this is what I like about this place is that we've kind of said, hey, we're going to be a place that uh, tries to bring down walls, that allows for honest conversation about what legitimately are really tough, tough questions. Uh, in fact, around 150 AD, the church was wrestling with this. And the guy named Marcion comes up and he says, oh, it's easy. There's a God of the Old Testament. He's a punishing, vengeful God. And there's a a God of a New Testament, who's a loving and forgiving God. And this one's a little higher than that one. God, the Loving God wins. But um, I'm just going to ignore those texts and make my own little Bible out of these ones. That was decreed as heresy. Okay? There is one God. And somehow the Bible tells a story of the one God. How those passages fit together, that is for the church to think about and discuss in community. So Here we are. Let's see how we do. Let me start off by saying this: kind of a baseline thing. I want to affirm with all of you folks, I think, because it's the testimony of scriptures itself, that all the Bible is God-breathed and useful. All right? That's what it says in 2 Timothy 3:16. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed. and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. I love that phrase, God breathed. It's actually the only time in all of scripture it's used, this idea of, it's, it's one word. But it's, it's a reminder of what happened at the beginning of creation, right? When the chaos is over all the earth and God breathes and brings it to life. Brings it to order. I kind of see the same thing happening here. God breathes, and out of this, this ordinary book comes something extraordinary. A book that is useful for all time. So that's what I want to affirm right off the bat. This book is God-breathed, inspired, right? ruat, spirited, bringing it into existence in life, bring, giving it life. So let's go to the next one. Point two. This is equally attested to in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is written by people, <laughs> lots of them, over many centuries, in fact, probably over 1,500 years. This is, this is an interesting one because we don't talk about this quite as much, but it's pretty consistent. All the way through, you hear it's prophets, it's priests, it's kings. They're all writing this book. That's important for us to remember. And over, oh, probably 1,500 years, this book starts to come into existence. That is actually really unique. Think about it. Think about other religious texts that you know of. This is not one person, one a spiritual guru receiving a vision from God and writing it, right? This is made up of multiple smaller books, multiple perspectives, multiple multiple people, all writing one book. At the same time, it's also not claiming that you know you had magic glasses and suddenly you were, you know, dictated and the word suddenly appeared and, and there it is. Uh-uh. We don't have any of that here. The t- testimony of the Bible is that the Bible is written by people, lots of them, over many centuries. And in fact, so the next point, this one might be a little interesting for people to think about. I'm going to say and suggest that the Bible contains a multitude of opposing perspectives. That's the language of Walter Brueggemann, who's probably one of the prominent Old Testament scholars of today. It... He, it's a record of dispute and debate. Now, think about what you know about rabbinic circles, and maybe not, you don't know a lot, but... <laughs> Alright, it's this idea of back and forth, discussing, debating. You know, you've heard it said, well, Shalel Shal- said this, and Halal right? said, said that, and, you know, refold. It's this debate, this back and forth debate. That's what seems to mark much of the Jewish tradition. I think the same thing happens throughout the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why people can read the same Bible and come up with very, very, very different opinions? Have you watched any televangelists lately? No, because you're here. <laughs> if you did, you might come across the odd... What do they call them? Like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? What, what, what the, what are, sort of that prosperity gospel, Right? Right? If you trust God, you will be healthy, wealthy, and of nice teeth. Maybe not the third one. But you're saying, how can they say that? Well, guess what? It's in the Bible. Hmm. Deuteronomy 26, let's read it. Deuteronomy 28, sorry, close. <laughs> um, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, this is a whole chapter on blessings and curses, right? You will be blessed. The Lord will open the heavens to send rain on your land and bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. So why are we prosperous? Or why are we suffering? Keep going. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will strike you with a wasting disease. Nice. With fever and inflammation, it keeps going. With scorching heat and drought. With blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. That, and and as you read the Old Testament, you will see this stream of thought going through. It's there. If you trust God, things will go well. But if you turn from God things will go badly. You hear that in the prophets, too. Why are we suffering? Because you have turned, because you have, right? Into this thread comes another thread. The psalmists talk about unjust suffering. The innocent sufferer. I'm blameless, he would say. Why is this happening? Lord, rescue me. Or the actual paramount story of this is Job, right? In fact, Job's friends are the Deuteronomy 28 people, right? They're not, they're not wicked. <laughs> they're actually very biblical, but they don't do a heck of a lot of good for Job. <laughs> right? And so you see this back and forth. Got, got what I'm saying? In fact, there's another theme that comes up in Isaiah, This is the suffering servant one, right? This this is just hinted at. But this is those that even through suffering, salvation come to the whole world. Do you see this development and these competing, if you will, views of what's God like? Why are we prosperous? Why are we suffering? This This is just one example. How about this one? How do we please God? What does the Lord want for us? Well, Leviticus is a whole book dedicated to answering that question. A whole book. And if you've read it, it's pretty consistent. This is what you need to do. This is what the Lord requires of you. Offerings, sacrifices, purification rites. And then at the end it says, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will look on you with favor. But there's another stream out there. And the prophets come up with this one because the people of Israel are doing all the Levitical stuff and they're still suffering. So why? Here it says, I hate your festivals. This from the same God, right? Stop bringing me your offerings. The incense makes me sick. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Do you see these almost... Pers- different perspectives. And we're thinking, okay, so how is this going to land? Right? So let's let's recap. All of the Bible is God-breathed and is useful. In fact, I find it very interesting that this God-breathed Bible contains debate and development. I think that's interesting. Hmm. Secondly, the Bible is written by people, lots of them, over many centuries. Divergence. Differences seem to be at the heart of this Bible. The Bible contains a multitude of opposing perspectives. It is the record of dispute and debate. And into this debate steps Jesus. Okay? Have we got it so far? The big story arc of the Old Testament. We've got this competing, these comp- competing views of what God is like and what God wants. Sometimes in rather heated discussion. That makes me sick. <laughs> That's not exactly the way to win friends. All right? Into this debate, Jesus steps. He defends people over texts. He sides with love. Hmm. Especially when it comes to victims of religious and societal violence and abuse. Jesus understands, and his deep belief is that the aim of scriptures is to call people into love. Any reading that harms a person is a wrong reading. Hmm. All right? Let me show you what I mean. What does Jesus do? Well, he breaks the Sabbath to heal, deliberately to make a point, even though he is going against one of those threads that God had passed down. All right? He touches the unclean leper even though, according to Leviticus, it will make him unclean. He eats with sinners, even though Proverbs says, don't go eating with those types of people. He refuses to engage in violence when the Pharisees want to stone an adulterer. Even though that defies the law in Deuteronomy. Do you, you catch this? Does is this is this, is this make some sense? All right, Jesus is 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 witness to all these streams in the Old Testament, and he's saying, "I want this one. Anyone that doesn't follow this one, I'm not going. I'm not going to read the Old Testament that way." Cyril re- referenced a book. Um, Last week, I mentioned it earlier, this book, Desiring Scripture. This is how Derek Flood summarizes some of this. Jesus prioritizes love over the law. Jesus didn't see himself as being unfaithful to God or to scriptures. Rather, he saw himself as fulfilling the scriptures. Oh, so there are all these threads, and he's fulfilling this one. He's letting the rest of them drop away and letting this one emerge and of being in continuity with it he saw himself as fulfilling the scriptures and of being in continuity with it the pharisees interpreted scriptures with catch this unquestioning obedience me think that's good isn't it uh uh-uh, uh not according to jesus even if it caused people harm jesus interpreted scripture with faithful questioning he's rereading the text reinterpreting the texts in a way that is faithful but that prioritizes love, declaring that the goal of Scripture is to lead us to love. Hmm. Interesting what Jesus does. He starts his ministry by quoting from Isaiah. He says, opens up the Scripture. In fact, he's in a debate setting which is how they have it. In the synagogues, they would all sit around and they would open up the scripture and they'd debate it, right? That's, that's kind of, this debate is a huge part of the Jewish tradition. It's just the way, the way they think and engage with the text. The spirit of the Lord is on me, he reads, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That shows the heart and mission of Jesus. But you know something that was really interesting? Luke says he closes up the Bible then, the text, the scrolls right then. But you know what comes next? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He stops there. Isn't that interesting? And if you think it's just Jesus, God does, I mean, God, Paul does the similar sort of things, where they will reinterpret scriptures, and we could go into this more. They'll reinterpret scriptures in a way that brings a thread through and they'll let the other ones drop away. I find that, I find that interesting. When people ask Jesus, What's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says it begins and ends with love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're so used to that verse that it doesn't strike us as strange. But there are 613 of those freaking laws. There are a whack of them. He could have chose any of them. Be holy. Be perfect. Offer this sacrifice. Make sure you don't hang out with these people. Stay away from that type of uncleanness. He could have gone all sorts of ways, but in good rabbinic form, he sums it all up in this. These two things. Love God, love your neighbors. This is the theme that Jesus pulls out all the way through. So you ready to recap again? (laughs) Let's go back. All of the Bible is God-breathed and is useful. Even hearing that there are multiple strains, and some of them we need to let drift away. In fact, I think if we start to read the Bible in this sort of faithful, questioning way, we're going to pay attention to things a little differently. We don't go into uncritically and blindly. We actually are looking for things, and then we're going to talk about this a little later, but we're going to do some things with those other texts, just like Jesus did. Hmm. The Bible is written by people. People in particular contexts, at times of life, with their hang-ups and their perspectives and their own notions about what God's like. Lots of them over many centuries. The Bible contains a multitude of opposing perspectives. It is a record of dispute and debate. Keep going. Into this debate steps Jesus. He defends people, people over texts, and he sides with love. We need to take our cues from Jesus. That's what I'm going to say. We need to read the Bible like Jesus did through this lens of love. Because if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. That is also the testament of scriptures. Keep going. Hebrews starts off and says, the sun perfectly mirrors God. And I can't express how strong that is. It is the exact... It's like... The stamp, (laughs) like the exact imprint. It is a perfect replica. The sun perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. Paul says the same thing. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God, in all his fullness, let that one sink into you, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. John says that he was the only person begotten, the unique son, son, the splitting image of his father. That's what sonship entails. You're just like your father. And so, when images of God in the Bible conflict with the Jesus we see in the Gospels, I'm proposing we need to faithfully question what we are reading, just like Jesus did. He prioritizes love over law and people over texts. He faithfully questions scriptures when it hinders people from experiencing God's love and mercy. So, how might we apply this approach to some of the texts in the Old Testament? Let's think for a minute about Noah, okay? Everyone, so if you're not familiar with the story of Noah... Uh, In a nutshell, God is fed up with the wickedness of the earth, sends a flood, destroys everything except for this one family, Noah's family, that he rescues in an ark. Okay? If you know of that time, everyone has a flood story. When the gods are angry, the people are wicked... And the flood is the punishment. That seems to be over and over and over again, right? This motif. It's almost a way of explaining why do floods appear happen? It's because gods are angry with us. So that part shouldn't surprise us when God was supposed to have flooded the earth to kill people. I'm going to say. Yes, it's the God, that God over there, the God of the culture. That's just so typical. That's not the surprising part of this story. What's the surprising part of the story? It's how it ends. It's how it ends, because it ends with a rainbow and a promise. A promise that says, this God wants a relationship. That's a different story, right? That's a different story. This God wants relationship. This God will never do this again. That's not the way this God acts. All right. I want you to see that just because it says, God says, I'm going back to point two. These are people's perspectives, and they are tainted with the curse. All right. Even though it says, this is one person describing what happened, And if I'm like Jesus, I want to pick out the thread that says, ah, this God wants relationship. There's something else happening here. You see, I think we need to fly higher above these texts. We don't want to get mired in details because the details can miss the point. If you're wondering, could that many animals really fit in an ark for a year and a half, you've missed the point, all right? That's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that this is not the God of the Canaanites. This is the God who makes covenants with people, promises, wants relationship. How about the story of Isaac? If you're not familiar with this one, some of its shocking nature If you are familiar with it, it kind of goes over you. But if you aren't, basically, God says, and I always use that in quotes, right, because these are people's perspectives. I'm going to say the Old Testament is the story of people gradually understanding the nature of God until it comes fully manifest in Jesus. We see through a glass darkly, including the Old Testament authors. They're seeing God through a glass darkly. So when Abraham comes down, he says, God... God wants me to take my son up, my only son Isaac, and sacrifice him, kill him. Well, that's typical for that. That's not surprising. That's the way gods are. <laughs> gods do that sort of stuff. They come around and say, I want that one. <sighs> okay, up he goes. I want your only, your oldest. All right. <laughs> that's abhorrent to us, but it's typical for that age. It's not surprising. What's the shocking part of this one? What's the thread that is actually the one we should be paying attention to? Let that thread drop the other one. But this thread, it's that in the end, God actually stops (laughs) them. Says, no, I'm not that type of God. There's a a ram that I provided for you. That's the aha moment. In fact, it's such an aha moment for Abraham that that he names the place God provides. I never knew that about God. I thought it was a God who takes, but now I'm learning that God provides. I want my encouragement today, and is that as we read Scripture, we come to it with this faithful questioning, right? rather than this uncritical obedience blind obedience. I want us to, like Jesus did, reinterpret things. Think about them. What's happening? So my question, is God a prince of peace or a God of war? And for me, that's an easy one. God is and has always been a God of peace, love, and compassion. Because when I look at Jesus, that's what I see. I don't see God changing in the way he deals with people, accommodating things. I actually think God's consistent all the way through. What I think changes is that people's perspective of God changes. And we need to be watching out for that one. How do we judge whether it's right or not? We look at Jesus, the image of God. So I don't even want to see God as a reluctant warrior God. It was the people of the day that attributed their own bloodthirsty ways to God. But over time, the Bible tells the story of Israel's growing understanding of who God is. And yes, it's always this sort of three steps forward, two steps back. So you can't ever just sort of settle in and be be tucked away, right? You're always going to have to be critically engaging and praying. That's the reason why Peter says, Scripture shouldn't be a matter of private interpretation. It needs to be done in a group. In community. But there's more. (laughs) This is the final point. Here's the thing I think is kind of cool. The story's not over. If you see this as a trajectory, if you see the Old Testament and New Testament forming some sort of trajectory, rather than being this sort of static consistency all the way through, then... I want to suggest that the Spirit is still at work. And I can say that pretty confidently because (laughs) Jesus said it first. Copyright to you. (laughs) Um, In fact, I love this. He says, we are called to do greater things. He says, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. So we can't even stop where the New Testament stopped. We still have to be looking for threads following Jesus' trajectory. That's the reason why, for me, men like Wilbur, William Wilberforce did exactly this. While people were uncritically obeying the, 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 all the texts about slavery, he was looking for a different thread and faithfully critiqued that. Question that. Likewise, with Bishop Tudu in South Africa, all those who speak for the oppressed, the marginalized in Jesus' name. Anytime we help people experience God's love and healing, we are continuing the work that Jesus began, speaking out against other forces, enabling the God's gospel to penetrate our world in new ways. That, and I'm gonna say this reverently that not even the apostles could appreciate. They made some great gains in some ways and simply pointed the way for us later on. You'll notice that we have women who are doing our preaching and leading worship and don't wear head coverings here. That is us trying to follow a trajectory along here and trying to be faithful even though questioning faithful faithfully trying to map that trajectory out. So that's it. (laughs) That's kind of another perspective on how we could understand scriptures. And I do hope that this kind of stimulates some conversation. I hope it doesn't um, get people riled up or saying I'm, you know, this is what happened in the New Testament, right? I'm with Cyril or I'm with Craig or I'm with Peter or whatever, right? That's not what we want. We want this sort of open debate and discussion in the way that I think the Old Testament was written. But even more than that, it's because what we're talking about really does matter. Here's the bottom line, though. If all of this remains some sort of academic head game, then, I say this respectfully, this has really missed the point. Because ultimately, both Cyril and I have come at this problem because we've experienced a God who we found to be gracious and loving and present, even when dot, dot, dot. All this comes out of a deep knowing. The Bible can point you to God, but there is nothing better than just simply spending time and getting to know him. It's why I love the fact that we do this weekly, because this is a table that God sets for us, and he invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because this is a God who is for us. This is a God who welcomes us just as we are. A God who delights in eating with sinners. Yeah, that's you. (laughs) Uh, A God who endures suffering for us and with us. It's a crucified God who doesn't let violence and hatred have the last word, but instead, out of that brings resurrection, life, and love, and light. He gives us his feast, welcomes us to this fellowship table, <laughs> and, uh, and says, Come, I. I'm not that type of God. I'm a covenant God. I want a relationship with you. Meet with me. Spend time with me. And so in just a moment, we're going to invite you, in the name of Jesus, <laughs> to come forward and take communion, bread, reminding you of the extent God went to to show you his love, a broken body juice, the lifeblood that was given for you. This God's love knows no bound. So as you're ready, come forward, take, be grateful. Listen again to the heartbeat of God because we have a good, good Father. Let me pray for these emblems. God, we acknowledge right now that we see through a glass darkly. We want to get to know you and the little bits that we get to know you overwhelm us. You are so good, so beautiful, so bountiful, so magnificent. You defy our attempts to explain and so, Father, I would pray that the words I've spoken would drift away should they be unfaithful to your character, to the extent that they're unfaithful to your character, Lord? Because I know that we haven't got it right yet. <laughs> and in, instead of that, would you, through your spirit, show us, remind us, that you are with us and you love us and that you have the best for us, for our enemies, for this world, at the very core of your heart. God, this is our prayer. Through this bread and wine juice that we give you thanks for, would you draw near, remind us again that you're a good God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.